0: Welcome to episode 13 of the Australian Athletic Podcast. And today we have a very, very special guest all the way in Queensland, Nathan Parnham, the author of The Sporting Parent. Nathan, would you like to say hello to everyone?
1: G'day, group. Thanks very much for the opportunity to chat and, and thanks to everyone for tuning in.
0: Now, Nathan, obviously uh, you've written the book The Sporting Parent, but let's go back a little bit. Where did your journey in strength and conditioning begin?
1: Yeah, so like a lot of S and C coaches, I played multiple sports uh, as a kid coming through, and, and just love sport in general. And and when it came to leaving high school, uh, I didn't necessarily have a plan as far as what I wanted to do because I wanted it to, I suppose, evolve organically. And my parents didn't push me to pursue education or anything like that. Um, And so I suppose I took a year off after school and then uh, funnily enough developed or started training in in Muay Thai and and developed a bit of a passion for combat sport. And then that's what ended up in that fueling my my passion for, I suppose, the thirst for knowledge in how the human body evolves and performs.
0: Yeah, I'm with you on that one. My parents never necessarily pushed me to play a sport, but they always facilitated the opportunity to do so.
1: Yeah, I think there's no other way to do it as far as just to, to become intrinsically motivated, which which is a huge factor for not only success in sport, but just success in life.
0: Yeah. Now, when you, I guess, finished your sporting career, I'm not sure if there was overlap between, when did you get into coaching?
1: There was probably, so I to give an example, I finished school in 1998, and then, for the next two years, I was kind of training and, and just dabbling in, like I said, in, in the combat sports side of things. And then from there, I pursued my undergraduate degree. And I my hands-on coaching actually started in my second year in my undergrad degree because I wanted to get in front of my peers. And uh, whilst a lot of graduates or undergrads will kind of try and just go through and do their prac hours I actually wanted a hands on coaching experience so yep. I did a, a voluntary internship with the gentleman Darren Burgess in the uh, with Parramatta Power in the National Soccer League or the former A League mm-hmm. and while I was doing that I also did my Cert 3 and Cert 4 in fitness and personal training respectively to allow me to start coaching or being a PT in a gym
0: It's something that we've spoken a lot about here and obviously spoken with yourself about it you can't really just rely on universities or tertiary study to give you the education that you need on the floor, that amount of communication that you need to have with people so you can get the most out of them, but then also understanding how majority of exercises feel. It's a different bowl game to just reading the textbook.
1: Yeah, massively. I-, I couldn't agree more because, and it's, I suppose this is, it's been cemented and really come to fruition for me in, in probably the last 10 years in managing my own programs and building my own teams throughout the different schools I've been involved with because in running internships there, it really came about in that we'd have anywhere up to say 50 applicants per internship and out of those 50 applicants, I I can literally count on one hand how many of those actually had hands-on coaching experience. And and when you're looking for individuals like that to to fill a role and be a part of your team, you're certainly not expecting them to be professionals and, and have experience in that space. But what you are looking for more so is just the, the, as we highlighted before, that intrinsic motivation of how are they trying to get better and how are they trying to get their foot in the door, where I feel like we, we've gone a little bit too far now in that with the multiple education streams and postgraduate degrees that are available on offer, that there's so many graduates coming out with postgrad and PhDs and things like that. And they've, not only do they not even train themselves, they actually haven't coached anyone and, and to me as you, you brought up that, that interpersonal communication is key in not only um, in how you coach people but it, it's also key in, in how you actually get jobs
0: long term yeah. you never know who you might meet whether it be through an internship or through a casual job even at a cafe, they might have that connection in the future. That they're like, by the way, this role came up. Did you want to take that? And majority of the jobs, honestly, are handed out that way. I don't know how many people apply with their resume for jobs in the SNC community, but majority of them come through word of mouth. Uh, from my point of view, at least.
1: Yeah, I, I completely agree, and, and we've had some really, some really, I suppose, robust and strong conversations in, in our team recently about this because you know we've got elements, we've got coaches in our team who still have aspirations to work in professional sport and. Yeah. And you know, while you see many jobs advertised in professional sport, the risk is too big for, for people to bring in the unknown, so to speak. So unless it's coming from a really strong recommendation of a peer or a colleague or friend that, that they've known for a long time, it, it's pretty rare that you're going to apply for a job and, and simply get it based on your skill set alone. Yep. So from, from my experience, and I can say that honestly, that majority of the jobs I've had, there's only been a handful of jobs that I've had that I've actually applied for and and got through the, the stringent interview process. The, the jobs that I've actually been given have been more so from people that I've known and relationships that I've built throughout the years.
0: If you think that you're going to land a job that's going to be 75K to 100K straight off the bat at a unique working professional sport, it just doesn't work that way, you need to be building up coaching hours and you majority of those roles take Uh, they won't take applicants that don't have at least 10 years worth of experience in SNC or more and then they're still working hours whether that be in the private industry or at semi-professional sport and then finally they get that recommendation when someone steps down that they need to fill in my boots because they've been working here so long and then you finally get that opportunity but they're still far and few between.
1: Yeah, you've certainly hit it on the head because to to give the listeners and and put this into context, for me personally, I was working for oh, I was a good 15 years before I actually uh, had an opportunity to step full time in the professional arena so to speak mm-hmm. so I'd, I'd coached, you know numerous professional athletes throughout the years in individual sports and things like that a bit like yourself um, and and the actual opportunity came up quite late for me where there was other peers of mine who actually were interns of mine and so forth who, who ended up getting into the professional space before I did and and a lot of that was to do with them volunteering their time and just going around to different clubs and so forth and, and the biggest challenge with that is in most instances when you see these jobs advertised you'll actually see in their minimum five years experience in the professional space and all these sort of things but the irony in the whole process is a lot of coaches that I know, and I was one of them as well, is you can get to a certain level in your coaching where you'd still classify you're still classified as as a, a highly respected or highly regarded coach at the level that you're coaching at, but it's just not full time professional, and you don't have those professional resources and roles that, that are applicable to it. Mm-hmm. So the challenge of it is is how do you bridge that gap? And, and I know far too many coaches who are idling and have and have idled for years. And they're quality coaches as well, but unfortunately, when they're trying to blindly um, apply for these applications or uh, you know, applying these roles, they simply don't have that five years professional coaching experience, so immediately they're pushed to the side when, in actual in fact, they're, they're quality coaches. They just need to be given a good opportunity and a mentor to help, yep. help them get in that space.
0: Yep, exactly. Back to your journey, what made you focus on youth athletes in that case, considering the fact that you're working with a broad array of athletes, why did you go down the youth path?
1: Yeah, so the irony in, in this whole thing is that if anyone's trying to get their foot in the door, a lot of the time the, the volunteer space is actually in the youth space. So not that I agree with it now. I kind of feel like I've, I've done a backflip in, in, in I suppose, my passion for it in that those roles that i first went for and, and got accrued my experience was in the youth setting and and at that time and everyone goes through a journey in their coaching experience throughout it and at that time that was uh, i suppose a, a platform and a way that i was going to leverage and get further experience and then eventually get into professional sport but the irony in, in the whole thing is that i actually yeah. developed quite a significant passion not through anything of the coaching but purely on the impact that I can make on these young individuals lives so it was only that when the light at the end of the tunnel was provided for me in the opportunity to go into the NRL in a professional space then absolutely I was going to jump at it and, and I was going to go all guns blazing because at the end of the day that's what I got in in this for. but it's only when you kind of get to the light at the end of the tunnel do you do you see or do you realise whether you know that's where your true passions lie? And for me, um, at the end of it, I, I felt like my my passion was more towards the youth space because of the fact that I can have I can just have a larger impact on not only the the athleticism of the individuals, but also just the the quality contributions that you can make to their character and their personalities to their lives.
0: You're not just making good athletes; you're making good people as they grow up.
1: Yeah, that's right. And, and the reality of it is in the professional space is, is you know, you're talking the 1% and 2% improvement from a physical perspective. But then at the same time, the athletes also have been around. So if you, I'm talking about those seasoned campaigners, the seasoned vets, is that they know what it takes to get their body ready to perform in their sport. So you're not really changing a significant amount of of the, on those particular individuals, and, and as a whole in professional sport, it's very much about what you can do for me if you're the athlete, what the coach can do for you, and in, in order for you to get better and for you to, you know, extend your career and things like that. And athletes are, you know, they're savvy like that. They they want to know how they can do those things, and if they don't feel that there's a use for them as an individual, then they won't they won't see a use for you as an individual as a coach.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Now, I'm sure a lot of coaches are going to be interested to hear this. How did you gather your first gig at a school? How did you get your first job at a school?
1: Yeah, so I can say that a lot of my uh, earlier jobs, whether they were part-time jobs, casual coaches, but, but actual paid coaching roles, they all came from my volunteering and my practicum hours through my undergraduate degree. Mm-hmm. So that's how I first got them. And then my very first full-time paid SNC role was in charge of Westfield Sports High, which is in, in Sydney. And uh, I got that job through a, a uh, an internship role that I'd also had uh, and built relationships through there. So um, it went from prac to internship through to eventually those same that same connect so to speak were were the ones who you know tipped me off on on getting that first full-time role
0: yeah and it's when they discover a product that you offer for free and eventually you get to a point where you can't be offering that service for free anymore but they still want that they're gonna pay for it because they just don't want to leave the kids without it because it's clearly benefiting the kids there
1: yeah, that's right. Exactly, and then and then on top of that, a, a huge part of this is the whole personality and um, you know the, the social skills and interpersonal skills of just what you can contribute to a program and how you can interact with coaches in different sports. So. Uh, I think too often as S&C coaches because we're, or athletic development coaches, we're so passionate about what we do that we end up having tunnel vision on for the product that that we're selling and that we're trying to get across the line. But at the end of the day, we have to remember that we're simply support staff for a variety of different sports. And if you fail to understand that in different sports, there's also cultural differences in their view of athletic development. So how you navigate that is once again just that that reflection of the interpersonal relationship between the athletic development coach and the head coach in being a support staff member and a technical staff member mm-hmm. how can you how can you build that bond
0: yeah what are the key principles you use for youth training
1: move well and move frequently yeah <laughs> so uh, i know that's going to say really sound really cliche but there's a reason why multi sport athletes do succeed, and yeah. it's because they have that physical literacy, that that syllabus that they can draw on to to handle any situation. That's the first thing, and and the second thing on top of that is I feel if if it is a quality development program, that you should be able to continue to build strength across multiple different facets, whether it be strength training, whether it be plyometrics and things like that, uh, in, in multiple different planes. But you should be able to do that with the least amount of limitations or restrictions, so yeah. being range of movement and things like that. Um, and the injuries and things like that will take care, care of themselves. The only Then the only thing you'll need to dabble and negate is just simply the maturation process and you know the rate of growth of them, because they're, they're bound to come across a few injuries along the way, and that Thanks. may not necessarily be anything to do with contact or anything like that but just part of the maturation process and and their application to training and how frequently they're doing it
0: kids get hurt it's normal (laughs) i remember having plenty of injuries as i was growing up because i was so active but i regret none of them and nor should any parent regret any of them too
1: yeah i completely agree and because the other side to it as well is we have to remember that it is a learning process so you know, my partner, as it is at the moment, she freaks out with, with our young little son who stumbles around and falls, but that's just the way that we learn and, and, and become kinesthetically aware of our environment. So if you hurt yourself enough, then you're bound to not do it again, and, and essentially that just becomes a life skill.
0: Exactly, exactly. One of the biggest things that we have kids doing in here, body weight and gymnastic movements, especially the ones under 10 years old, we don't need them picking up weight, we need a see them run we need to see them jump we need to see them do a handstand. we need to teach them how to fall safely so if they do fall on the field they know how to brace themselves and not just have a panic attack when they're about to hit the ground because that's when they're going to get hurt when they make those hesitant decisions or make those hesitant movements if they can like you said move often and move well they're less likely to get hurt
1: Yeah, totally, and because the thing is, is exactly what in what you're saying there, I I couldn't agree more in the fact that the movements need to be reactive and they need to be instinctual. So if they haven't, if they're pre-programmed and they haven't actually, you know, practiced them in a variety of different environments and in response to a variety of different stimuli, then they are pre-programmed and it's not instinctual. So then you're also going to increase the likelihood of it because you'll see it and this is where a lot of that whole specialization comes into it is it's one thing for for a a child or a youth athlete to be so specialized that you know they're getting balls fed at a particular point at a particular angle and the opponent's running and in in this place and that place but it's like hang on a second the the difference is is that sport can be in many instances Mm three-dimensional so how does the body adapt and respond to that and and that is all instinctual.
0: And you can almost, as a parent or as a coach, pre-program that fear of doing something by putting your own thoughts and, I guess, concerns about a particular movement, whereas children that haven't experienced that before haven't heard about it, they won't have that unless they've been told that. So getting them to experience before they have that fear is so important.
1: Yeah, definitely. And, and I think that's a huge challenge for adults, uh, whether it be you know, coaches, um, you know, parents as a whole, is that... We often use our adult, you know, I call it our adult mindset is that, you know, through our own accumulative experience, then what we do is we're kind of shaping and jading, I suppose, the view of our child and and our youth in, in the sporting arena, whether it be their mindset. to to particular training or competition and things like that, when what we actually need to do is just kind of set them free, let them play, so to speak, Mm -hmm. and then let them experience it and evolve as individuals themselves.
0: What have been the biggest challenges for you implementing strength conditioning in school environments?
1: Yeah, the the number one, the the biggest one would certainly be that whole – that my child shouldn't participate in strength training or resistance training until they're you know fifteen, sixteen, or in year nine or year ten at school, and yeah. um, it's probably the biggest fallacy, which I'm not sure where it ever came from. But if there's any parents out there that are, are listening to this quite attentively, then we need to really get that out of our mindset because uh, kids have done this from you know from when they were babies learning to walk through yeah. to to whatever, and, and there's multiple things that they've done along the way that that includes you know body weight things like yes. climbing trees and you know cubby houses and all these sort of things um uh, that, that they've done and essentially that's a form of strength training but the challenge of it is is as soon as they walk in the doors of a gym and most parents will see the dumbbells i'll see the racks and oh you know my little johnny who's in year seven and he's 13 years of age shouldn't be anywhere near that stuff and and the reality is they're never going to be near that stuff because if they're getting quality coaching in the first place, then as you've alluded to there, in that a lot of it is body weight based yeah. stuff, but it's still strength based, it's still yeah. resistance based, and it's serving a purpose. But that purpose is for that particular part or, or moment in time for that child's journey throughout it. So that's the first thing, and and I think a huge thing now, which we're having really big challenges with, is the whole instant gratification side of not only. The mentality and the mindset of, of the youth and generation coming through but as parents we're essentially supporting it and, and a good example of that is uh, a lot of parents that, that I come across is you know we, we have a, a, a syllabus and a, a, a program in place in, in where I'm working at the moment and to me it, it's just a process but in a lot of instances when parents uh, their sons, whether or not the, the communication becomes misconstrued and whatnot, and um, then what happens is the, the students or might not get what they deem to be an individualized or a specialized program when it's out of season, and then the next thing the parents are supporting and endorsing that jumping to you know a personal trainer at a local gym or something who's more than happy to to take the money because he needs it, and mm-hmm. and part of that journey. Um, is is about building that process and that system so um, as parents I think we need to respect and, and understand which is part of me in, in being as transparent as I can in writing the book is that it is a, it is a journey and, and it is about trying to assist and and build your child's journey and framework throughout it as opposed to giving them that something with expecting immediate results based on a specialist mindset or model for a particular
0: sport or year round. It's the social media generation. I hate to say it. It makes me sound old as well, but it's the, I want this now. And if I can't get it now, then it's not worth fighting for because I'm just going to feel like shit by the end of this process of having to try for something and not getting it straight away. So what's the point of even starting it? And it just... It frustrates me because honestly, it brings up kids that, oh, if I'm honest, there's so many more that are suffering from depression just because of that.
1: Yeah, and and it's funny you say that because in the last couple of days, I've been banging my head against the wall too. And, and the reason for that is that I feel like as coaches, we're actually losing the battle to by by referring to them as this generation and, and things like that and, and the reason for why I feel like we're losing the battle with them is because we're, we're being phased out of that mindset of no it's a process and you need to go through the process and there's progressions and regressions throughout that process but every single thing in society is going against that. So whether that be the apps that are produced on their phone or the devices, through to you know the way that they see movies now through Netflix being a you know a, a small pocket-sized, bite-sized chunks, where yeah. even movies now they're, they're not around as much. They're more TV series and, and things like that. So everything's being dictated by really short attention spans. That whole instant gratification. And as coaches, we need to be aware of how we don't lose this generation by not providing elements of that instant gratification which they're actually being shaped from in their day-to-day lives
0: yeah now like you said we have to adjust to what's currently happening out there and it's a battle but education is key
1: yeah totally and and the huge thing of this is from the as coaches from from the parental perspective is the the more we do and the more we engage in in initiatives such exactly like what we're doing right now is communicating a message out there so that we can enhance the the understanding the learning of parents so that they can apply that knowledge themselves in their own context in in their own circumstances so that it, it suits their family and their children as a whole wherever they are in that journey
0: now, touching on a more recent and current topic, how has COVID impacted the way you deliver, I guess, SNC programs in schools?
1: Yeah, the, the, this is an interesting one in that uh, we've been, and I don't say this to, to gloat by any mean or be sensitive, and, and that is in Queensland, we've actually been extremely, extremely fortunate that uh, we haven't been as impacted as, as bad as other states, and And the reason why I do say that empathetically is because I've relocated from New South Wales to Queensland at the beginning of this year, and and I see my family and and friends and everything that are going on in the different states throughout Australia um, that are impacted differently. And and the challenge for that is, for me, it, it hasn't been a huge thing. So we've done online sessions where... You know, there've been group sessions, but they've been minimal. But I can talk for, for other coaches who I, I speak with quite frequently, and and a lot of their success has been the frequency of their online coaching. Yeah. Um. But but it's not only the online coaching; it's actually the parental involvement yeah. with that. So there's a lot of instances where coaches uh, that I know of are actually trying to actively engage the parents to participate in these sessions with their children to, in order to increase compliance. And, and the positive and the flip side to that is that that's actually positive role modelling from a parental perspective so that your, your child actually has fond memories of physical activity and participating in sport within, within itself or the training associated with it. But a huge thing of it that I think that we're all uh, underestimating is the positive memories that are actually going to come from this in the long term being that if you look at your local park, where there's often the the, the busy schedules and frequent Saturday and Sunday sporting fixtures, what we've seen in the last 18 months, approaching two years, is parents actually down at the local park playing with their kids and kicking a footy around, whether that be with mum or with dad. And there are so many benefits that are going to provide long-lasting positive memories of this as opposed to a lot of parents are probably feeling a little bit overwhelmed at the moment. And and the, the huge benefit from that is, you know, the, I saw a mum step up to a crease and her two sons were trying to bowl her out on the cricket pitch. And, <laughs> and I, but I, I can honestly say that I, I don't think that would really be happening if we weren't in these circumstances. So it's things that, that all the kids are going to look back on in the years to come when they're, when they're older and more mature and, and there will be fond memories of it.
0: Funnily enough, a few of the parents that have actually read the book here have walked in about a week later going, I read that I should probably participate more with my kids uh, from the sporting pyramid. Uh, and I'm like, yes, exactly. You need to build, you setting an example for them. And if you're doing it, they're going to want to engage more. And like you said, you're going to build those memories that they're going to instill behaviors for the rest of their life. That physical activity isn't a chore. It's just something that you do as part of everyday life to keep you healthy, happy, and everything else that comes along with it
1: yeah and and because the funny thing with that is is and most parents like at the end of the day every parent out there is trying to provide the best for, for their children and in many instances parenting is the most selfless act that you can actually do and so what I mean by that is we often sacrifice our own time we often sacrifice sporting participation and things like that because we want the best for our kids. So we're too busy running around and dropping them off and and we're actually not doing anything for ourselves. So exactly what you, you mentioned is if parents are actively involved with it and just setting a standard like, you know, going for a ride with their kids or going for a run and things like that. They're just two simple examples, but it's actually positive role modeling. And it completely changes the perspective of, you know, children's view on sport and, and non organised um,
0: sport for that matter. Mm-hmm. In that case, I have to ask, considering we're talking about the book, what sparked you writing The Sporting Parent?
1: Yeah, I, I, I suppose from, I'm, I'm going into now my, I think it's my 18th year of, of coaching and, and there's still questions that are coming through now that were coming through when I was, you know, my first and second years coaching. And for me, I felt like that if those questions are still uh coming through then we're clearly doing uh not only a, a, poor, a poor uh way of communicating to parents but it's not out there for them to actually uh, seek and, and get that information and, and i suppose digest it in their own time so for me as soon as i had completed uh, an element of my career in professional sport i felt like i had a voice to talk across all levels and and that when i say all levels so in the book we go into you know the types of sport that can be played as early as you know two and four years of age through to being young adults and the implications for that and so if there's a parent out there who's unsure of what sports to enroll their their children in but they want them to be physically active then I'd like to know that there was ample um, information provided in there that, that can give you that and empower you to make those decisions mm-hmm. and likewise if there's those who, who display success and you know, they're on the fringe of making state, national representative teams and, and they're even, you know, in the process of being scouted for the professional ranks, then then what are the implications for that and, and, and how do we negate that as well? So um, it's a little bit like a seesaw in a, in a way, I suppose, and, and it, the reality is that, that many of the kids and youth throughout the country fall somewhere in between that. It just depends on, on where they sway at their particular time in the journey.
0: Yeah, and they not The advice given doesn't necessarily have to be for high level or semi high level sporting athlete. It can be for anyone that just wants to get their kids involved in physical activity too.
1: Yeah, that's right. And and that was a a big thing with it because a lot of people were like, "Oh, so what? You're just trying to write a book to basically give the success of how to become an elite athlete?" And I was like, "No, that's
0: that's completely from it, it. Yeah,
1: that that is definitely not what it is about. It's purely about empowering and giving parents the knowledge." to go about it and and apply it in their own particular context and and setting. And and I suppose that the byproduct of that is it's led to to relationships like like this one where we have now in that a lot of the the concepts that are are discussed and covered in the book are actually things that you would do in in the day-to-day coaching in your environment. And it's just another resource that that parents can not only listen to, to your expertise and your opinion of it, but then they can actually go home and go hang on a second i want to look at this and and read it and, and it's done so in a in a light-hearted simple easy to just digestible way that it's not jammed down your throat and it's not scientific as far as to the point where you don't understand it it's more about how simple and easy this is which essentially should make sense
0: yeah no i agree with you and honestly it's been a great read for me and for everyone else that's had a read of it through here uh what advice have you got for parents and coaches training youth athletes?
1: Uh, the main thing is that it's, it's your individual journey. And, and I suppose what I mean by that is you're going to go through different challenges along the way. And those challenges uh, may be similar to others. But at the same time, who you listen to and where you draw your information from needs to be refined to your own individual circumstances and situation. Yep. So, yeah, the, the biggest thing would be that it is your journey and, and you need to own that journey. But where you draw that information from and, and the decisions that you make, that is that is really important and really critical too.
0: Yeah. Where do you see strength conditioning for youth heading in Australia?
1: It's. A, I think, well, that, uh, that is a really good question in Australia and I think we're on the world scale i suppose we would be a little bit behind compared yep. to other countries so uh if i use america just as one simple example then you know their specialization in in the strength and conditioning space and, and particularly the use space has been going on for a long time yep. and uh, because it is a multi-billion dollar industry we can't overlook that and there's certainly going to be continual you know elite academies and all these sort of things continually pop up and i think the biggest challenge is going to be the knowledge of parents and their understanding of what is worth the, their hard-earned dollars yep. um to get what they particularly want to get out of it, it at that, that particular instance or stage in their child's journey so there's, there's going to be a lot of a lot more specialized models being sold because it is financially viable and, and it is just such a, a lucrative trade, I suppose you could say. Um, but is it the best model? Uh, it, it's certainly not. Um, and what it actually does do is, is separate you know, facilities and coaches such as yourself uh, from that to, to get that knowledge across and be able to effectively trend, communicate that effectively to get the best out of everyone's children along the way.
0: That's what I was going to ask. Do you see it as something that's implemented through schools or do you think it's more the private sector that has to take the lead on this?
1: Yeah, so the biggest challenge with that is, uh, so they are the two different things. So what I mean by that is the schooling space is still very much in its infancy. So if you look mm-hmm. at um, the high school space in, in the US, once again, just as yep. I used that example before, a lot of those... Uh, you know the big recruitment schools that have links to colleges and things like that. Their facilities are, are phenomenal, and they, <laughs> and they invest a, a huge amount of money into it. But I think in, in Australia, in the schooling space, there's been a little bit better understanding in that it's more about promoting health and, and lifelong physical activity choices um, throughout it that that can utilise and leverage off in-house uh, strength and conditioning facilities and. And we're only seeing schools start to invest in this space now. That's the first side of it. The second side of it is the the, the um, private sector side of it. There's a lot more private facilities coming up, no doubt. But but that's for no other reason than than I think the I suppose the broad diversity in our industry at the moment is that there's so many different avenues to go that it's not all about whether you're just working for your local club. Or working in professional sport now people are legitimately passionate like myself and yourself in in working with youth and going well i can do this full-time so why wouldn't i do it full-time because at yeah. the end of the day we're passionate about it and we want to make changes for the future so
0: absolutely speaking of the future what aspirations do you have for yourself
1: oh, for me i'm i'm still in the the, the infancy of, of building a program here where i am so i'm only yeah. in Term three in the schooling space here, so um, you know I'd, I'd like to think we've got a lot of growth to, to continue to evolve in this space here. And and the number one thing is now that the sporting parent has been released, is is just making sure that that communica- that communication of that a clear, distinct message uh, is is wide and, and distributed throughout the parents throughout Australia, namely, and then following on from that, various countries throughout the world.
0: I think there's a lot more to come but honestly you've made a great start the book is one thing about what you're doing around schools especially in the east coast man i love your work thanks very much bud i
1: really appreciate it and i really appreciate all the support from from all you guys in jumping on board with this because it is really cliche to say that you know we're all sharing and trying to spread the same message, but it's only through passionate coaches like yourself who are willing to, to put the time in and really invest and throw themselves out there that are we are we really going to get this message across, and, and I can only hope that in the years to come that, that, that we're going to have a, a lot more of a healthy and fruitful generation through sport because of it.
0: There's definitely potential for that, and the uptake that it's, I've seen from parents just in their training and then getting their kids involved in training I can see a very very bright future as long as the path continues as is but in saying that man it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on today
1: Thanks very much and yeah I really appreciate the offer and yeah I I can't wait to uh, continue on seeing where this builds and and where it goes and particularly for the parents who have tuned in and the members who have tuned in today Um, you know throughout the different states of Australia yeah thanks so much for the opportunity
0: Make sure you guys follow him on Instagram at Nathan Pinerman at The Sporting Parent. Keep up to date with everything that's going on. And until next time, guys, thank you.